Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. And this is our ninth session in our series. We want to talk about providential redemption and we want to talk about the incarnation. We've been talking about the whole idea of coincidence. In fact, Sarah and I were just discussing that right before the uh, uh, session started. And coincidence has the idea of chance to it. That, uh, In fact, I put, again, put Webster's definition in your notes there, an accidental and remarkable occurrence of events, ideas, etc. at the same time. There's sort of a confluence uh, of these things happening at exactly the same time. My goodness, what a coincidence that is. Well, the Bible is very clear that there's no such critter as a coincidence. And that is that, the, that life is filled with divine appointments. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time for sowing. There's a time for reaping. There's a time for weeping. There's a time for laughing. There's a time for everything. And providence, again, as you'll see from the definition, even that uh, Noah Webster get, provides for us, uh, he, he says that providence is active foresight or foresight accompanied with the procurement of what's necessary for future use, the care or benevolent guidance of God or nature. And so we discover that when things come together in a certain way, it's not because of chance, it's not because of coincidence, it's because of divine providence that God has a plan and a purpose for what's going on. And today we want to think about that, or at least begin to think about it in terms of the, the idea of redemption. And I put a couple of more definitions in your, uh, in your notes there because these are real important terms to understand. Uh, the first one is that of redemption. And we've said many times, and I'm sure you could recite it back to me, that redemption is defined as the effecting of one's release from bondage by the payment of a ransom. It's the idea of purchasing uh, out of the slave market uh, as, uh, as sinners, uh, as guilty sinners. We stand before God with our arms and uh, our wrists and our ankles shackled, uh, chains around our neck, and we've been sold into sin. And when God redeems us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the chains drop away. And God buys us out of the marketplace. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're, we become the sons and the daughters of the living God. And the other important term that we're going to be talking about today is that of incarnation. And incarnation just simply refers to uh, the idea that deity takes on human form. Uh, I've used this illustration a lot, but very often when we go to the uh, supermarket and we buy chili, we buy chili con carne. Well, what is chili con carne? Chili, it's chili, con means with. And carne is, uh, is, uh, is a Latin form that means flesh or meat. It's chili with flesh, chili with meat. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about God taking on meat, God, human flesh, uh, taking that on. So that's what we're going uh, to be talking about today. And again, in the, 
with the idea that none of this is coincidental, that there's been a plan from all along. And to sort of set the stage, uh, much of what we're going to talk about near the, uh, near the end is very familiar stuff. In fact, you're going to be looking around and say, well, now where are the Christmas bells? Because the only time we talk about this is around Christmas time. But before we get to that point, I want us to look at, um, at some passages from the Scripture that have to do with redemption having been planned and people waiting for what God had planned for them. And we begin by looking at this passage, uh, you'll notice in your notes in that right-hand column, from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And this is sort of a, a really a retrospective. Uh, of course, uh, Peter, uh, Peter's writings occur near the end of the New Testament, and what he's doing is he's looking back and reminding us of some things, and notice what he says. He says, for you know, and he's, taught, he's writing to believers, believers in Christ, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But, well, how is it that you were redeemed then? You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then notice the last sentence that Peter writes in this section. It says, He, that is Christ, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Now what is it that Peter's telling us? Peter is telling us that salvation is not an afterthought. It's not that God created Adam and then uh, made Eve from the rib of Adam. Yes, all of that's true. And then the fall occurs in, in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, that's true. But it's not that once the fall occurs, you find the Godhead all getting together up there and saying, Oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? We really got a mess. We didn't anticipate that anything like this was ever going to happen. You don't see anything like that in the Bible at all. And what Peter is reminding us here is that before God ever put the first star into space, long before he ever put man and woman on the face of the earth in, in the persons of Adam and Eve, that God had all, already knew exactly what was going to happen and God had made perfect provision for that because he says he, the Christ, was chosen when? Before the creation of the world. In other words, he knew that there would be a time, uh, there would be a point in time and space in which uh, the second person of the Godhead would step out of eternity into time and space and take on human flesh in order to live a perfect life and to die for the sins of his people. So this is, this is, this is not something, the, the sin in the garden is not something that caught God by surprise. Notice uh, the next little passage is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we, see, uh, where we actually see God speaking to the serpent in the garden. The fall has already occurred, and God has pronounced the curses, and uh, as, as a part of that, he says, and he's speaking to the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity between you, that is, between you, the devil, and the woman, and between your offspring, the devil's offspring, and her offspring. And then notice what it says. He will crush your head, that is the head of the serpent, and you, the serpent, 
will strike his heel. This is what's known to theologians as the Proto-Evangelium. Now, this will not be on the final exam, so don't worry about trying to remember that word. But what that means is that it's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Peter has told us, in retrospect, God had this planned all along. But we see it mentioned for the first time there in Genesis chapter 3, where, where God says there's going to come a time when the offspring of the woman, this special person who will come along, will actually crush the head of the serpent. And we'll see, see more about what that means next week when we look at the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Notice that the, that is, remember that at this point, uh, the man and the woman, after their sin, had covered themselves with vegetation. But was that sufficient? No, because what God did was he covered them with animal skins. And, of course, in order to get an animal skin, you have to kill the animal. So it was a picture of blood sacrifice and the animals were sim the, the animal skins that this couple was wearing in the garden uh, that God provided for them were symbolic of the fact that there would be one who would come, who would die, who would give his life and would, uh, would take away their sin. Notice the passage from Genesis 49 verse 10. This is something that, uh, that uh, Jacob said. Uh, actually from his deathbed. And he tells us where this promised Redeemer is going to come from. And he says the scepter, what's a scepter? That's an emblem of rule. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Even as early as Genesis 49, when... Judah was just a rapscallion of a son doing all kinds of things that he had no business doing. We do see one little shining glimmer of light in his life at one point. But, uh, but Jacob tells us that there's going to come a time when somebody out of the tribe of Judah will actually be the one, uh, will be the one, the, the ultimate Messiah. He'll be the one that the obedience of the nations will be his. And, of course, that's a, that's a picture of Christ. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.18 uh, was, was, uh, was God speaking to Moses. Remember, God already has given the Mosaic law at this point. And the law, had, in fact, the law had been given some 35-plus years earlier than what is stated right here in Deuteronomy 18. But God recognized that while he had given the law and given sacrifices, given a sacrificial system to help deal with uh, the breaking of the law, that there was no one who could keep the law. It was impossible to keep the law. And God says this to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. He says, I will raise up for them, that is for the people of God, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he, this prophet who was to come, will tell them everything I command them. And of course, that's a, that is clearly, even the Jews recognize that this is a messianic prophecy. It points to the one who ultimately would come, who would be the answer to the sin question. Psalm 110, verse 1, from the pen of David. 
Notice there's a, a, a reference again here to, to giving us more information about who this person is. Remember when you read the Bible, that just like uh, we were saying earlier, the first mention of the gospel is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that, that, uh, that this person is going to come along who will crush the serpent's head. Well, how in the world do you know who this is? Well, what you do is you keep reading the Bible, and by the time you get to the gospels over here, then you discover that uh, who this person is, that it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, uh, it's an... It's an unfolding kind of, uh, of revelation. And that's what we see here in, in Psalm 110, verse 1, where David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes, and he says this, The Lord, now what do you notice about the word Lord? All caps, that means the name Yahweh or Jehovah, the covenant name of God. The covenant God says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What we discover is that this person who is coming, this one who in Genesis 3 is going to crush the head of the serpent, this one who according to Jacob is going to come from the tribe of Judah, this one who according to Moses is going to be the prophet who will speak all the words of God. What we discover in this passage from Psalm 110 verse 1 is that this person is none other than deity himself because it's someone who actually sits at the right hand of the covenant God. And then, very familiar passage, it's one we always hear around Christmas time, is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses uh, 6 and 7. And again, it, it tells us a little more about the who, who this person is, but also when this person was going to come. And it talks about the reign of our Lord Jesus. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. God gave his only begotten son. And the government, that is the government, all the rulership will be on his shoulders. Remember what Jesus said right before he was taken up in the ascension? He said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to whom? Given to him. Now, on that basis, you go and you make disciples. It says, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, could you say that about any kind of normal kind of human being? No, because obviously uh, even somebody, say, like uh, Alexander the Great or one of the Caesars or somebody like that, even as great as their empires were, their empires ultimately came to an end. They died, their empire fell apart, or at least within a, another generation their uh, empire began to fall apart. But it says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's just going to keep on increasing. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and what? And forever, from now on. Now, so, so throughout the Old Testament, God has been speaking. He's been saying, We're, you're sinners. All of us, all, all human beings are sinners. You all got a problem. And there's no way to deal adequately with your sin. The law, all the law does is just remind you of what sinners you are. But all throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly 
kept giving us little glimpses of this one who ultimately would come. And finally, in the book of Malachi, God mentions that he says, well, before that one comes, there's going to come another one, sort of in the spirit of Elijah. And he's going to be the forerunner. And then all of a sudden, after Malachi speaks, God grows silent for four, almost 400 years. God doesn't say anything. Well, people go on with their business. Bus businessmen keep doing business. Women keep doing the things that they were doing, some in business, some homemakers. Uh, the priests were doing their thing. Other people were doing their things. Everybody's just kind of going through the motions until there comes a time when all of a sudden God dispatches an angel named Gabriel to speak to an elderly couple in Judea. Uh, we'll draw our little map over here just so we can kind of get our bearings. Here's the, that represents the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Jordan River. There's the Dead Sea. And here's the shoreline. And we're going to be looking at an incident that occurred up here in, uh, in Nazareth. And Nazareth is in, uh, is in the province of Galilee. And then, uh, and then we're going to be looking first at an incident that takes place down here in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where the, uh, where the temple was. And this is in Judea. And, of course, between Galilee and Judea was a despised place called Samaria. Very good. Okay. We probably won't talk about Samaria today, but just so our map will be complete, we'll put that up there. All right, notice what happens. God's been silent for 400 years. Now he sends an angelic messenger. And that's where the story in Luke chapter 1 picks up. Now again, remember, we're talking about not coincidences, but we're talking about the good, benevolent providence of God, how he has prepared all these things, how he has made perfect provision for everything. And we want to we see some more illustrations of that. Luke 1, verse 5. <clears throat> In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. That would make them of the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now, does that mean that they were sinless? No, because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It just meant that this was a very pious or devout couple. They sought to live right when they did mess up like all of us do, when they did do something that was wrong. They knew the right sacrifice to offer, and they offered that sacrifice. That's what Paul meant when he said, before the law I was blameless. He didn't mean he never sinned. He just meant when he did mess up, he offered the right sacrifice. But of course, that sacrifice could never put away sin. All right, it says, but, now they had a problem, verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were well along in years. So we kind of get the idea that uh, Probably Elizabeth was postmenopausal as well as, and, and barren to boot. So what we're going to discover is that these people are the parents of the Messiah's forerunner. Now the last thing that was mentioned before the Old Testament closes is Malachi says that before the day of the Lord there's going to come a forerunner like, in the, in, like Elijah who's going to come along. And so all of a sudden we see God moving and uh, the stage is set just for that. Verse 8, Once 
when he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Remember uh, in the, uh, the temple, I'm, I'm not going to try to draw the temple, but inside the uh, temple, remember that the, the doorway to the temple always faced east without fail. Even back in the days when it was a, uh, uh, it was a mobile worship unit called the tabernacle, anytime it was set up, the opening always faced east. Just inside here was this huge bronze altar where the sacrifice was made. And then there was a, uh, there was a big wash bowl back here for the priests uh, who were kind of moving around in this area and their feet would get bloody. There aren't, everything about them would get bloody with all the sacrifice that was going on. But there was a big wash bowl back here called a laver where they could wash their hands and feet. And then back behind this, there was a, uh, there was a, a covered area called... Uh, uh, that was divided into two parts. And the back part, the front part, was called the uh, holy place. And remember in the holy place, there was, a, there was a, a table that had 12 loaves of bread on it. There was also a lamp stand. The wicks had to be clipped every day, trimmed, and oil had to be added to the lamps. And then separating these two compartments was a real thick curtain. And just outside this curtain, was, uh, was, a, was a, uh, a device for burning incense. And that's where old Zechariah is. He's inside the holy place, and he's going to be burning incense. Now, behind this curtain was uh, one piece of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant that had the mercy seat on top of it. And uh, Zechariah didn't, never did get to go back there because Zechariah was not the high priest, and only the high priest could enter this second compartment, and that was only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So, Zechariah is ministering here. There's just lots of folks all outside, as we shall see, uh, waiting, to, uh, waiting for Zechariah to finish offering uh, his incense, and then he, was, the normal procedure was to come outside and sort of pronounce a benediction to all the folks who were around and everybody left feeling good. It's kind of like going to church on Sunday and you feel good because you went to church and then when it's over, you know, when it's all over and you've sung the last hymn, the preacher says, all right, now let's all rise for the benediction. And everybody rises and the preacher raises both hands and he pronounces a benediction and everybody just grins like mules eating briars and walks out of there and says, yes, we can beat the Baptist of Piccadilly today because we got out early. And that's kind of the attitude that these people were waiting for here. He says, okay. He was, uh, verse 10, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So you see, he, what is he doing? He's just doing his job. Now remember, God hadn't said anything for 400 years. For several generations, his dad, his dad before him, his dad before him, None of these people have had a fresh word from God. All they've had, all they know is what's written in the scriptures, and clearly that's sufficient. But our tendency is to forget about that. And so he's just kind of going through the motions, and the folks are kind of here playing church or uh, temple, I guess would be a better way to say it. And it says, then, and something incredible happened, verse 11, an angel of the Lord, now we discover later that it's Gabriel, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. That's right outside that little curtain there. And uh, so he's inside there. All these folks are outside. Nobody can see him. Nobody can see that angel. 
But when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. I bet he was. I, I'm always amazed at this. Uh, what's the name of this program that's got to do with angels that's so popular now? Touched by an angel. And, you know, from what I hear, uh, people are always excited when they run into these angels and how wonderful it is. Yet every time you run into an angel in the Bible, the first thing you do is have to get over your fear. It's a real scary kind of situation. It gripped with fear. Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Well, a prayer that he and Elizabeth had been praying for years. Guess what it was? They won't have a child. <clears throat> Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. So this is going to be who? That's right, John the baptizer. That's right. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now notice uh, verse uh, 16 there. It says, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. All of a sudden, when he's saying that, if, if Zechariah's mind was working the way it should have been, he would immediately have thought, this, this angel is quoting Malachi right now. This son that's about to be born is the one who is to be the forerunner. Well, if you've got the forerunner coming, what's the implication of that? That's right, the Messiah is right behind the forerunner. He'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people prepared for the Lord. Notice, the appointed time was coming. Was this a coincidence that all this was happening? No! God had planned it when? What did Peter tell us? before the creation of the world. This was no coincidence that it was happening right now. This is what God had in mind all along. Notice in the left-hand column of your notes that little brief passage from Galatians 4, uh, verses 4 and 5, where Paul refers to this, and he says, but when the time had fully come, in other words, when, when it came up time, you know, we, we, we get dressed on Sunday morning, and we sometimes get dressed a little bit too early, and we find ourselves sitting around, turn on the TV to see what's going on, and uh, we keep watching the clock because we, we sure don't want to get in the wrong kind of traffic, but we don't want to be late. So we watch that clock, and we say, okay, it's time to go. That's it. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to do what? To redeem that's what we're talking about. See, God's plan all along has been to redeem His people, to buy them back out of the slave market of sin. God was not caught by surprise in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. He had already, in His mind, within the counsel of the Godhead, the decision had already been made before the first star was ever put into space that because there's this need, because this is going to happen, because of all of this transpiring, there's going to come a time when ultimately Messiah will come. And this is the right time, when the time had fully come. Why? To redeem those under the law, to what end? 
that we might receive the full rights of sons. That is, that we might be adopted into his family. Now, the problem, the problem here is, okay, is you've got, uh, you've got, uh, let's say here in heaven, now I, I don't want to limit where God is, because obviously God is transcendent and he can be anywhere he wants to be. But here you've got God, and you've got God in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet difference in their personages because the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Spirit, nor is the Spirit the Father. They're three persons, but one God and one, one God only. Now, so here's the deal. You've got, you've got uh, the Godhead here, and what Paul says is in the fullness of time, God is going to send his Son born of a woman. Well, now, wait a minute. How does God become a human being? See, that's the whole message of the incarnation is that God took on human flesh. That God who has existed from all time before has always been. You can go back as far as you can, as far as you can find before the creation of the world. Put your tent peg down, God is still already there. He's always been there. So how is it now that God is going to take on the form of human beings. Well, that's what the incarnation is all about, and that's what the remainder of our story for today is all about. God had to become human in order to redeem human beings. Remember, in the Old Testament, uh, those, uh, those various sacrifices that they made, all they were sufficient to do was to make a person ceremonially clean so that they could have fellowship with each other again, so that they could come into the temple, so that they could go about their normal business. But none of those sacrifices put away sin because if they had, you wouldn't have to keep doing them over and over and over and over and over again. And so God now is going to become human in order to redeem certain human beings. And that's the story of the incarnation. And we pick up part of that story in Luke chapter 2. And this is, here you really begin to, uh, not begin, but you see more and more God's providence at work. Say, okay, now, now we know already from having read the Old Testament, and we've, we've probably all read this in just our quiet time in the last couple of weeks. There's a passage in, uh, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that tells us where this Messiah had to be born. And where was that? In Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem is just a few miles away from Jerusalem. Well, what we discover in reading the story, if you, and Luke 1 is not in your notes, but you can read it in the Bible, is what you discover is that Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth. And she's, uh, oh, she's getting on along. She's, she's probably into her eighth month of pregnancy. That's not a real good time to do a lot of traveling, I understand. But anyway, you know, we look at it and say, well, looks like God's got a problem to me. Because you got this couple, Joseph and Mary, and Mary's carrying uh, uh, the Son of God in her womb. And they're living up here in Nazareth, and it is you just don't do a whole lot of traveling during the eighth, seventh or eighth month of a pregnancy. And certainly this, this could be sort of a treacherous trip anyway. 
So, looks like God's sort of up a creek here because uh, how in the world is he ever going to get those folks down to Bethlehem uh, where that baby is supposed to be born? Well, it wasn't a problem for God. Notice what happens in Luke chapter 2. Is this one of those coincidences? Or is this an appointment of God where God uses something that somebody does and they don't even realize what they're doing, but he uses it to accomplish his will? Let's see. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, what days? Well, the days of Mary's pregnancy and all these special things that are going on right now, back then. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should... Well, now, what's a census? What do you do with a census? You count heads, that's right. Or you, Yeah, you count heads. Uh, that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, why is Caesar Augustus concerned about a census, do you think? What, what, what would getting an accurate head count uh, accomplish for him? Why might he have that in mind? That's right. He's, he's concerned about his tax base. That's exactly right. Let's count heads. We can see how much, uh, how much tribute we're going we're gonna, to uh, levy out of these folks that live down there in the region of Palestine and how much we're going to get out of these folks. And I can see if I can afford to, uh, to raise my centurions, pay any, and I uh, want to be sure we can uh, keep living that lavish lifestyle. And the folks at the Colosseum been telling me that the lions are looking kind of slim. We want to buy a better kind of feed for the lions. You know, whatever his reason was, he's concerned about his tax base. I, I guarantee you the one thing he is not concerned about is a poor Jewish couple living in Nazareth. But in issuing the decree, some things began to happen. Uh, there's a little historical note there in verse 2 about this was the first census that took place when, while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Verse 3, And everyone went to his town to register. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Do you think Joseph wanted to make this trip? No. You, and notice what else he did. He says he went there to register with Mary. Remember, she's from the house of David too, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. This is not a good time to travel. So why in the world are you doing this? Well, we know why it's being done. Why? That, that's right. That baby's got to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, this is just one of those coincidences. It just happened that Caesar Augustus did. No, this is not a coincidence. This is God using the whatever you want to call what Caesar did, whether it was scheming or conniving or whether it was just trying to be a good government bureaucrat, uh, trying to take care of his tax base, but he used that in order to get that couple where they needed to be. Notice I put Micah 5, 2 in your notes there on the left-hand side where God had spoken. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small, Bethlehem was a little city, small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And then notice that last phrase, whose origins. Now, what's an origin? That's where you come from. Whose origins are from old, from of old, 
from ancient times. This is none other than the ancient of days who is going to be born to this little teenage girl in Bethlehem. And notice verse, uh, verse uh, 6. While they were there, that is, while Joseph and Mary were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, and a manger is what? A feed trough. It was sometimes made out of wood. Sometimes it was hewn out of stone. It could have been either one. Because there was no room for them in the inn. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we're talking about God's provision, where's God's provision now? Uh, if I was going to send my son somewhere and I'm the ruler of the universe, he's going to stay at the Regency Plaza. But you don't see that here. And it looks like they're sort of in a mess. Well, at least six weeks later, some real interesting characters show up at the door. And a number of things that have happened. The reason we know that it's at least six weeks later is because 40 days after Jesus was born, uh, Mary went for purification at the temple in Jerusalem, and, sh and she and Joseph offered up a sacrifice for her purification. The normal sacrifice that you were to offer up uh, was, a, uh, was an animal. But if you were too poor to be able to buy an animal, then you would offer up either pigeons or turtle doves. And remember, Joseph and Mary offered up the turtle doves. That, was, that just showed us that they were indeed a very poor, poor family. But sometimes between, sometime at least, between that 40 days, whenever they made that uh, sacrifice there in Jerusalem, and somewhere between another oh, year and a half to two years later, there's some real interesting folks that showed up there. And Matthew 2 tells us about it. Remember that there were a group of folks called the Magi. They weren't kings, but they were king makers. They were Persians. They were astrologers and astronomers. And they were people who, um, who really put their stamp of approval on people uh, becoming kings there in the east. And remember, they had made their way to Jerusalem. They had come to Jerusalem and had spoken to Herod and to some of his associates. And the reason they came to Jerusalem was because Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and they were looking for who? The king of the Jews. Where would you find a king? You find the king in the capital. And, of course, Herod didn't have a clue. Remember, Herod was not a Jew. He was an Idumean, that is, a descendant of Esau. But one of, uh, one of Herod's guys said, oh, yeah, hey, when Messiah comes, there's no question about where he's going to be born. Micah told us that. But the only people who ever went that four miles to discovering were these magi. Now, we don't know that there were just three. There could have been a whole bunch of them. But verse 9 in Matthew 2 says, After the magi had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. Uh-oh, now what does that tell us has happened? Now where was Jesus born? Yeah, he's born outside somewhere behind an inn uh, in some very, in sort of a hostile kind of environment. But by the time that these personages arrive, Jesus and his mom at least are living in a house somewhere. Now we don't know where, but uh, in, in Bethlehem somewhere. 
On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, don't you know that must have been something for Mary to behold that, that some people of that kind of, per, those personages of, with that kind of prestige would actually come down and fall on their faces before this infant that she's holding in her arms? Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And, of course, these were very emblematic. Gold uh, spoke of his royalty. Incense spoke of his priesthood. He would be the perfect offering. And myrrh would certainly speak of his death. That was something that they, uh, that they used. They would mix it with, uh, it served as an analgesic to take the pain out of things. Remember, Jesus didn't take any analgesics. Verse 12, and after having, <clears throat> excuse me, and after, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there till I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And we know that Herod had already said, we're going to kill everybody in Bethlehem, all the children in Bethlehem and its environs who were how old? Two years old and under. So they had probably seen the star back about two years ago the, uh, originally. Now, the question is, how are Joseph and Mary going to uh, be able to afford to live down here in Egypt? What's the expensive gifts the gold the incense and the myrrh were very expensive gifts not only were they symbolic of things but they were very expensive and of course this what is God doing God is providing exactly what this little family needs to be able to do what God has called this little family to do and God still does that today verse 14 we're glad to say that it says, Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And again, there's a specific time for everything. Notice again in the left-hand column of your notes. You remember, and we're going to look at this next week as we look at the crucifixion and the resurrection because that's where all this is leading up to. But remember, there were times when Jesus said this phrase to different people. He said, my time has not yet come. There was a point in, um, in Nazareth at one time where a bunch of folks just started to mob him, took him out to the brow of a hill and read, were ready to throw him off. And it says Jesus just walked right through him and went on his way. How could he do that? Well, his time had not yet come. But notice when he does go to the cross, and this is just to give you a little... Uh, something to think about for next week. Notice that passage from Matthew chapter 26. He says, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? See, for years, for three and a half years, He said, It's not my time. It's not my time. It's not my time. And then eventually when he sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem where ultimately he's going to be crucified and subsequently resurrected. 
And his disciples begin to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't be doing this. This is crazy to do this kind of thing. And he said, what shall I say then? Shall I, shall I, am, am I to say this cup is to pass from me? Mustn't I do what the Lord, what my Father has called me to do? This is the time now. And that's what we're going to see next week. Just by way of conclusion, let me just mention two or three little things here in your concluding notes. You can read them for yourself. First of all, God's providential care often goes unseen by us because of our preoccupation. Zechariah's doing his job. The folks were just hanging around there at the temple. Nobody's expecting anything out of the ordinary, yet God was at work doing what he said he would do because it was time. Sometimes God's providential care goes unseen by us because of our own irritation over the aggravation and the inconvenience and the disappointments that we face. Joseph and Mary having to make that trip during their third trimester. What are they, you know, what do we look out for when things turn miserable for us? Well, how do I get out of this? Who's to blame that I'm in this kind of situation I'm in? Who am I, who's going to listen to me while I carry on about all this? Or am I going to say, Lord, help me to see your hand in arranging all these circumstances because I know ultimately they are for my good. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.